And please turn once again into Revelation chapter 10, where we speak of the angel and the little scroll. It's been three weeks since we have been in the book of Revelation. Just a kind of quick review, if you recall, chapter 6 and 7, we were introduced to the vision of the seven seals. Remember in chapter 5, the, the angel cried out, who is worthy to, to, to open the scroll and to break the seals and to look upon what it contains? And none but the Lamb himself was found worthy. And so those seven seals are broken through chapter 6 and 7. And then in chapter 8, we find the vision of the seven trumpets, warnings in the present age for all men to repent. Now, we've only looked at the first six trumpets in these two chapters, 8 and 9, uh, and they, uh, they, they point out or they, they, they explain or they highlight the death and the destruction that take place throughout the world in the present age. We're not talking primarily about the looming catastrophe at the very end of the age of final judgment. We're talking about temporal judgments that take place from the time that the Lord Jesus returned until, uh, went to heaven, ascended, until the time he comes back once again. Now, there certainly is an indication that there will be an intensification of these catastrophes as the end draws near. But chapter 9, we find this stunning declaration at the very end, at the very, in spite of the plagues and the judgment that were poured out by the Lord on all mankind, in spite of the clear warning that further judgment and calamity were coming, it tells us that the rest of the unbelievers refused to repent. They clung steadfastly to their sin, and they demonstrate a stunning devotion to the idols of their hearts. So we come this morning before we get to that seventh trumpet, there's an interlude before, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, much, much like we saw in chapter seven, an interlude between the sixth and the seventh seals. But this interlude is there as it was at the previously to encourage the saints in the midst of all of this judgment and this death and this destruction, to reassure the saints living in this world that God is on his throne and he is in control. So in this vision, we see this mighty angel of the Lord, and he calls out in a loud, powerful voice to John, and the angel entrusts John with three messages. So let's look. First of all, the first message comes to John as the sound of seven thunders. Now look at the, the description of this angel, first of all. He says, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. Now, this takes us back to chapter 5, where it tells a mighty angel cried out in a loud voice, who was worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. And now John sees another mighty angel. And the description of this angel reflects the glory of God. Now, this is not God appearing. This is not Jesus appearing. It's a mighty angel sent by the Lord. But he's wrapped in a cloud, which indicates the majesty of God. The, the rainbow that is over his head reminds us of the covenant faithfulness of the Lord. If you recall, the rainbow appeared to Noah, promising that God would never again destroy the earth. So it's a reassurance of his grace 
and of his mercy. It says his face was like the sun, radiating the glory and majesty of God. If you remember when Moses descended from Mount Sinai, having met with God, his face shone like the sun. It tells us that his legs were like pillars of fire, speaking of majesty and strength, of stability, even in a world that seems like it's coming apart. And it tells us his feet were planted on the land and on the sea, which again is a a, a reference to the universal sovereignty of God. In the Bible, when a man's feet were planted, it's an indication of dominion, an indication of possession. In Joshua chapter 10, uh, they had conquered uh, an army of, uh, put together by five kings. And these kings were brought out, and Joshua told his, ma- his, his commanders, put your feet on their necks as a demonstration of their conquest. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25, at the final victory of the Lord Jesus, it says God has placed his enemies under his feet. In Ephesians 1.22, it tells us God has placed all things under Jesus' feet, which points us to the reality that God is sovereign over all of creation, over this entire world, land and sea. There's nothing outside of his control. And so through this angel, God reveals himself, his character, but also his plan for his people. One of the commentators, Dennis Johnson, writes this, and he wrote this in 2001. I always like to know when, when commentators make uh, references that have any kind of cultural connection, when did he write that? So this is what he wrote 21 years ago, 2001, when evil is everywhere and the world is ripe for judgment, when economies crash, when civil order falters and the social fabric frays, when restraint and respect give way to rude aggression and random violence, when greed and animal appetites reign supreme, when consensus and community decompose into culture wars. That sounds like today, even more than then. But this is what he says. When all these things happen, can God keep Jesus' little flock safe as they stand? It seems defenseless in the crossfire. The answer here we find is yes. God is in control. God is, his feet are planted firmly on this world. His angel, his messenger is sent to demonstrate that authority. So the angel holds in his hand a little scroll that is open. Now, there's a discussion out there. Is this little scroll the same as the scroll that uh, we find in chapter 5? Who can open that scroll? None but the Lord Jesus is worthy to open the scroll, to break the seals, and to look upon what it contains. So I'm not sure this is the literal same scroll that we find in chapter 5. It was held in the angel's hand, unsealed. Now, remember, Revelation is highly symbolic. So we're not to worry about the literal. What is this literally? Because it's not. It's a, it's a, it's a vision. It's a symbol. And so the emphasis is not on what is that scroll, but the emphasis is on the message contained in the scroll entrusted to John. Now, some say it's the gospel. And that has merit, but I think it's best understood this scroll is the message entrusted to John throughout the book of Revelation. Beginning back in chapter 1, it certainly includes the gospel, yes. It includes the dreadful message of judgment that would be poured out on the lost. But the primary emphasis is the glorious triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ over all his and all of our enemies and the, the fact that he shares that triumph with us. 
bringing us into his new heaven and his new earth. Look with me <coughs> in Revelation 1, verses 1 and 2. Johnson points out there's this five-link chain of transmission that takes place. Revelation 1, first two verses, then revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So here we have God the Father giving the revelation to his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus sends an angel who gives it to John. John writes it down and sends it to the churches and ultimately to us. So we find this chain of transmission of the word as it were. And so then we get to chapter 5 and the father says, the, the angel says, who can take the scroll and none but the lamb, the Lord Jesus. And he takes the scroll from the father. He opens it and then he sends the angels one after another to announce the judgment of each of the seals. And those announcements are given to John who writes them down for us. And then in Revelation chapter 8, the angel gives, angels are given the seven trumpets and they begin to blow each one. And John records these visions as well as they are given to him. So here in 10, again, the angel appears with this scroll, giving it to John. Where did he get it from? He got it from the Lord Jesus who received it from his Father in heaven. We find this transition or this transmission of revelation continuing to be emphasized. But John gives us here this amazing development. Look at verses 3 and 4. He called out, this angel called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. I had pen in hand. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Kids, have you ever heard a lion roar? Now, you might have been to the zoo the zoo, the, the lion at the Greenville Zoo always seems really tired, right? He's just not very ferocious. Uh, yeah, I've tried to get him to roar before, and he just kind of looks at me and goes, you got to be kidding, right? But maybe if you watch Lion King, if you remember that scene where little Simba and Nala are being uh, preyed upon by the hyenas, and they're, they're just about to be consumed, and Mustafa, the father, the Lion King, jumps in and roars, and suddenly these hyenas are cringing back in terror at the roar of the lion. Or if you've read Chronicles of Narnia, at various strategic points in the story, the lion, Aslan, roars, and his enemies shrink back in terror, and his servants are emboldened, and yet filled with awe and wonder. So when the angel calls out it's like a lion's roar and then he says <coughs> excuse me seven thunders sounded now we've seen the seven seals and the seven trumpets we know that seven bowls of God's wrath are coming and here we read about the seven thunders and we're talking here about this faint rumble you hear in the distance sometimes we're talking about that window rattling thunder that arrests your attention it takes you from whatever you are occupied with and all you can think about is this thunder that is just erupted around you, but it's one after the other, after the other, seven thunders. That's what John hears as the angel calls out. But there's an important difference here. 
with the seals and the trumpets and with the bowls to come. John records the message of those seals and those trumpets and of those bowls. But with the seven thunders, he is told no. He's forbidden to write down what he had heard. Seal it up. Do not write it down. Do not communicate the message that you have received from these thunders. Now, if you're like me, immediately you want to say, well, I wonder what those thunders said. I wonder what the message was. John was forbidden to write down. And we need to be careful about speculating. We need to focus on what God has told us. But before we ask, what does it represent? In chapter 4, verse 5, we find out from the throne of God are flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. And that refers, that, 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 that points us to the awesome majesty and glory of God coming from his throne. But I want you to turn with me to Psalm 29, because I believe these seven thunders are actually an allusion to this psalm. So much of the book of Revelation draws from allusions from the Old Testament, or even direct references in many cases. <coughs> I'm going to read the entire psalm. And I want you to notice the thunder of the voice of the Lord in the psalm. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare and all his temple, all in his temple cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. What we see here is a the image of, 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 of a ferocious thunderstorm striking and stripping trees bare and causing all manner of chaos. And John equates that with the voice of the Lord. Now, without looking down and counting, just, just guess, just, just, just a guess, all right? How many times do you think the term voice of the Lord is repeated in Psalm 29? Anybody guess seven? Because that's what it is. Seven times. The seven thunders of the voice of the Lord come forth in Revelation chapter 10. So when the angel is calling out, God is speaking powerfully. God thunders from heaven. But he says, John, don't write it down. Now, there's an important principle at work here. <coughs> God has revealed much to us. In fact, the word revelation is based on the Greek word apocalypse. An apocalypse means revelation. It doesn't mean like devastation, like we think of the word. It's, it's revealing that which has been hidden. And God has told us so much about himself, but there are some things about God, they're simply beyond our comprehension. 
Now, in the same way, God has revealed many things that are to come in Revelation. We see the seven lampstands, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. We hear or we read of things that are and things that were, that are, and that are to come. But there are some things God chooses not to reveal. And yet he tells us that those things are there. Sometimes we think, just don't even tell me you have a secret, right? When somebody says, I have a secret, but they won't tell you. It just, you know, kind of gets at us. And it's very possible there's simply, there are things God doesn't want us to know for whatever reason. Now, there are certainly things we're not ready to handle. If you remember, Jesus said to his disciples, I have many more things to tell you in the upper room, but you're not ready for them yet. The spirit of truth, he'll reveal them in time. In Psalm 139, uh, the psalmist speaks of God's omnipresence. He is everywhere. Wherever I go, you're there. I cannot escape your presence. And then he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And it's very possible that the knowledge contained in these seven thunders is beyond our ability to contain it. Too wonderful for us. So I want to share with you a very, very important principle of theological inquiry. All right, are you ready for this? Important principle of theological inquiry. There are some things that are simply none ya. By that, I mean none of your business. If God has chosen not to reveal it, then we should not be pursuing what that might be. We simply need to let God take him at his word, what he has told us, and what he chooses to withhold, be content with that. In the book of Job, Job is crying out, God, why is this happening to me? Now, we know why it happened, because Job chapter 1 and 2 tell us, but Job is not privy to that information. And God does not pull aside and say, Job, let, let me explain something to you. This is what happened in these heavenly councils. No, God in four chapters basically says, Job, I'm God, and you're not. So who do you think you are to question me? In fact, God says, I will question you. You'll give an account for yourself. So we can't hold God to account and demand he explain himself. It's one of the important lessons of the book of Job. But God is gracious, abundantly gracious, to reveal to us what he has told us. Because to be honest, we can never plumb the depths of God's word. There is so much here that we will never fully comprehend. There's so much about God he's clearly revealed. And if we'd spend our lives majoring on that, we would not be so concerned about those things that are the secret things. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, we read, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of his law. The revealed things is what we should be occupied with. We should be seeking to follow the words of his law and let the secret things be the Lord's, not ours. They're none yet, as it were. We shouldn't waste a moment speculating. I wonder what those seven thunders might have, might have contained. I wonder what it was John was getting ready to write down. That is fruitless speculation. God told John, don't write it down, don't tell them, and that ought to be enough for us. And it will be if we fix our attention on what he has told us. But there's this, there's this carnal curiosity this pride. You remember those, uh, some of you that are my age, you remember the old National Enquirer commercials. I want to know. Know what? Gossip about other people's lives is not any of my business. That's what's written down in those tabloids. But I want to know. There's that carnal curiosity. And we can sometimes bring that to 
the Word of God. I want to know more than what God has told us. Focus on what He has told us. Psalm 131, verse 1, David says, My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. There are great matters that are too wonderful for us to hear, and it's not our business, and we need to content ourselves in focusing on what God has told us. So whatever God reveals to John in these seven thunders, it's above our pay grade. It's a great matter. It's too wonderful for you and me to hear, and we ought to be content with that. The reality is there are a lot of things in this life we can't make any sense of. Why, did God, why does God allow the wicked to prosper? Why does he allow the wicked to prosper against me or you? Right? Why does God allow those who are truly seeking to live godly lives? Notice I didn't say, why does he let the righteous suffer? But why do those who really seek to please him still go through intense trial and pain and suffering? Why do we go through dry times where it seems like our, our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling? Why? Well, Scripture gives us some reasons how he uses the testing of our faith to produce endurance and spiritual maturity, but why this particular trial at this particular time in this particular way, and why over and over and over and over again in some of your lives, it just seems like one wave after the other. Why? And God has not chosen to reveal the answer of those, to those mysteries. And a mark of spiritual maturity, hear this, a mark of spiritual maturity is that we're able to quiet our souls and rest before the Lord in the face of questions that never get answered. We're willing to wait. We're willing to trust the Lord with those things that we cannot understand. If you have a baby in your house, you know that as soon as he wants something, what does he do? He cries. And if you don't attend to that crying, it gets more and more intense. He doesn't go, well, I may as well stop crying because they're not coming. It, gets, it becomes a royal fit. But as the child matures... As he grows, he learns not to cry. He learns to ask appropriately. And then he learns to wait patiently. And this demand for immediate gratification, it's a mark of immaturity. And spiritually, it's a mark of spiritual immaturity. The secret things, those are God's. They're not mine and they're not yours. And you and I need to be content to leave it that way. We shouldn't concern ourselves with things too wonderful for us. That's a mark of humility. That's a a mark of mature faith in the Lord. Well, that's the first message. We don't know what it is. It's above our pay grade. But secondly, we have the second message that comes in verse 5 through 7, where the angel takes a solemn oath. It says, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. <coughs> he raises his white hand, right hand. He, he swears by God himself, the God who created heaven and earth and the sea, the one, the God who lives forever, forever. And the way that John states this oath emphasizes the solemnity of what the angel is about to say. And what he says is there will be no more delay. When that seventh trumpet is blown, that's it. The mystery of God will be fulfilled. Now, remember, this is an interlude. We had six trumpets. The seventh is coming. This is an interlude to reassure the people of God. He will take care of us. 
He is in control. Just like in chapter 7, we saw the sealed uh, saints of the Lord before his throne. And even as these dreadful plagues are poured out upon the world in chapters 8 and 9, in these first six trumpets, we're reminded that he is in control and he is for his people. Look with me at 11, verse 15, if you would. That's when the seventh trumpet is going to be blown. 11, chapter 11, verse 15, then the seventh trump angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. If you know Handel's Messiah, you know that's part of the hallelujah chorus, right? It's taken from this text. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Jumping forward to verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. There were, here we go, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the last triumph. This is the end. This is the creation of the new heaven and the new earth, where the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The new heaven and the new earth are established once and for all, and the mystery of God will be fulfilled. His eternal plan will be fully accomplished. And that happens when the sounding, when the seventh trumpet is blown by the seventh angel. Now, I want to remind you again, you remember, if you've been with us, you remember we talked about this principle of progressive parallelism. In other words, Revelation doesn't represent a linear chronology of the last times. Rather, it's the same story of judgment, redemption, triumph, repeated in seven cycles with greater intensity and more precise focus. And so when we come to this seventh cycle, that's the conclusion of this revelatory cycle, where the final judgment is carried out on God's enemies. God's temple in heaven is opened up. That's, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves because that's next week. But then it tells us in chapter 12, a new revelatory cycle begins. So here we are in this interlude in the, seventh, in the seven trumpets. But we come now to the third message from this mighty angel. John is instructed to take a scroll from this angel and eat it. Look at verses 11 through, or 8 through 11. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And I believe that voice that forbade John to write and now tells John, Take the scroll from the angel. That's the voice of God coming from the throne. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but your mouth, it will, in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now, turn with me, if you would, briefly to Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, so forth. After the Song of Solomon. Ezekiel chapter 2, we find the allusion that is referenced here in this text. Uh, if you're like me, you're in trouble. 
Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. That's where it is. Okay. All right. Ezekiel 2, verse 9. I'm in Lamentations. Sooner or later, we're going to find it. All right, here we go. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9. I'll begin in verse 8. You son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And I had writing on the front and the back. And there were writing, written words on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak of the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this, his scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with a scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So the Lord is revealing to John. It's not John simply hey, I think I'll I'll illustrate what God's telling me by something I remember when I read in Ezekiel. No, God is revealing to John consistent with his word, showing him the scroll and saying, eat, just like he did with Ezekiel. We find similar language in Psalm 119 where the psalmist says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Or in, in Jeremiah 15, 16, when your words came, I ate them and they were my joy and my heart's delight for I bear your name. O Lord God Almighty. So John eats the scroll and it is, as it were, sweet as honey. So in verse 7, when it says that uh, the, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, John is in that line of these servants, the prophets, taking the scroll, taking the word, eating it, finding it sweet. Now, this is a picture really for us. How do we receive the word of God? It's not enough to be familiar with the Bible. You know, we, we, we looked at the verse of the month this morning and, 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 and read it together. Hopefully, you're learning to recite it. It's not enough. The, the Bible says we should hide the word in our hearts, but it's not enough just to, 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 to remember it. It must go deeper. Too many people have a surface relationship with the word of God, but they haven't taken it to their heart. They haven't devoured it. They haven't digested it. They're hearers of the word, but they're not doers. They're like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand and has no foundation rather than building it on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. They hear the word, but they fail to put it into practice, and they cannot stand on the evil day. The word of God, friends, hear me. The word of God needs to fill our hearts. It needs to fill our minds, fill our bellies, as it were. It has to take hold of us. God's word is what changes our hearts. It changes our thinkings. It it changes our priorities. It cleanses our consciences. And so like Ezekiel, John takes the scroll. He eats it. He digests the message into the very depths of his being, and he finds it sweet to his taste. It is utterly his. And that sweetness is the effect God's word should have on our souls. The sweetness refers to the promises of the gospel, the glory that is to come, the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the new heaven and the new earth. John sees what is in store for the people of God, and it is infinitely sweet. That sweetness is reflected in some of the hymns that we sing. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. 
or amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If we look in Ephesians 1, 3, it tells us that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ, and we see these blessings are sweet. Eternal election, we were chosen in him to be adopted. We were redeemed through the blood of Christ. We have the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of our conscience. We have the riches of God's infinite grace given to us. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we have this eternal inheritance that Peter says can never perish, spoil, or fade. The blessed hope. But not everything in the Christian life is all sweetness, is it? John's stomach, it tells us, turns sour, which is exactly what the angel told him was going to happen. And there's an honesty that we find in the Bible. The Bible doesn't present the, the Christian life as a rose garden devoid of any thorns. Paul says, all who live in this world will suffer persecution. Jesus, a blessed are you when men revile you and hate you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be glad. That's how they treated the prophets who came before you. There's another gospel song I grew up with. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Let me be honest with you. In my case, that hadn't been the case. There are some days that are sour. There are some days that are painful. And I can't find the sweetness that I experienced at other times. That's not to say that the word of God or the gospel are in any way harmful or bad. It's to say that there are thorns in this rose garden. And as long as we live in this world that is a world under the curse, we will experience the fallout from that curse. In Revelation 21, it says that all things will be made new. The former things will pass away. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. Those are the former things on that day. But that's that day. On this day, those are the present things. And he'll wipe every tear from our eyes, which means there will be times of tears in this life. Scripture is honest with us about that. So what is it in the message that turns the stomach sour? It it could be many of the challenges that we experience yet in this life, the continuing battle that we have with our own indwelling sin, where we we have these self-inflicted wounds, and like Paul, we cry out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It can simply be the cost of discipleship where Jesus says we're to deny ourselves every day, take up our cross and follow Jesus. And bearing the cross is is costly and sometimes painful. Every instinct in us says indulge yourself and protect yourself. And Jesus says to you and me, we're to deny ourselves. Sourness can sometimes be from the, the, the intensity of trials that we experience, which are part and parcel of living in a broken and a fallen world. And Revelation makes it very clear that the people of God are not exempt from these temporal calamities that are to come on this earth. In fact, some will be martyred, some of God's people, as we see in Revelation chapter 6. But Jesus makes these glorious promises to those who overcome. If you remember, in each of the messages to the churches, the seven churches, to him who overcomes. But what does that emphasize to us? It emphasizes there are things we must overcome. That sourness can also refer to the persecution that the child of God experiences for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. As we faithfully live out the gospel, there are some who will look and admire, but others who will hate us and despise us and revile us and slander us. 
And if we proclaim the gospel boldly, there will be some who will oppose, in many cases, vehemently or even violently. And the very ones we're seeking to love and seeking to win with the gospel of Jesus will oppose. And if you love them, it will break your heart. If you truly care for those and you're, you're seeking to win a loved one, a family member, a neighbor, and they, they, they turn against you for insinuating that they somehow need a Savior that you and I both know we all desperately need, it's sour to our stomachs, as it were. But another source of this sourness is not just the impact it has on us, but it's the wholesale rejection of the gospel and of God we see all around us and the impact it knows we know it's going to have on those whom we love and on those of the world. And we see in chapter 9 these dreadful plagues poured out and men of this world still are clinging to their idols and to their immorality. And they steadfastly refuse to repent no matter what they might experience. So the sourness is not just the impact of their rejection to us. It's the, the, the broken heart as we see men running pell-mell into judgment. It grieves our soul to hear God's name mocked and blasphemed. And it grieves our soul when we preach and when we pray and we share our lives and we share the word and those that we love close their ears and they close their hearts. They reject the message and the specter of judgment continues to hang over them. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, John 3, will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That specter of judgment produces a sorrow, a sourness in our stomach, as it were. So John eats this message, this word, and it's sweet to his taste, and yet there's a sourness that goes with it, a sorrow that goes with it. And he is told in verse 11, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. You remember in Revelation 7, it speaks of this great multitude around the throne, men from every, or people from uh, many peoples and nations and language and tongues. Every tribe, nation, people, and language. They're clothed in white robes and they're worshiping the Lamb. But here we, we see something a little different. It says many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And throughout the book of Revelation, kings typically are allied with the enemy. Kings of the earth are those who will experience defeat from the judgment of God. So this great multitude John is to go prophesy about are not the redeemed host who will cry glory before the Lamb. Rather, it's the great horde of unbelievers who continue steadfastly refusing to repent. And John is called to prophesy about them. And the message is not a happy one. It's a message of judgment that is going to come. That seems to be the sourness of the scroll John has eaten. So, as we, as we draw this to a close, let me ask you this question. What are we to do with Revelation chapter 10? There's some chapters here that, that have this just immediate application. Oh, man, I need to take this to heart. But, but what do we do with this chapter? Well, there are a few things I think are quite important that ought to impact us as we take this word and eat it, as it were. First of all, let me ask you, do you have a right view of God? When you pray, are you aware of God's sovereign power, of his majesty? I've said before, there are those who 
interpret the book of Revelation in light of current events in the, 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 the daily newspaper. They're trying to connect these images in Revelation to, to the current events. What we ought to be doing is interpreting current events in light of the book of Revelation. It is our God who is in control. He stands with authority over the land and the sea with his foot on the neck of his enemies. And as the world looks like it is spiraling out of control into greater and greater chaos, God is still on his throne speaking. His voice thunders. And we can rest secure in the revelation of who God is as we find him revealed to us in the book of Revelation and particularly here in chapter 10. But secondly, there are some things that God has chosen not to reveal to us. Revelation is what he reveals. But there are some things he told John, don't write that down. And there are other aspects of our lives that remain mysterious and unknown. Are you willing to content your heart with that? Are you willing to say to the Lord, I will humble myself and I will not, I will not occupy my mind with things too wonderful for me? I will major on that which you have chosen to reveal and allow the secret things to remain yours. And I won't waste a minute of my time or an ounce of my spiritual curiosity on that which you have chosen not to reveal. Will you let the Word of God direct your heart, your thoughts, your priorities, your focus, your attention? Can you be content to wait until the Lord makes all things clear? until the seventh angel, the seventh trumpet is blown and God's mysteries are fulfilled. Thirdly, I would encourage you, do you recognize the sweetness of God's word? Do you recognize that what God reveals to us is infinitely sweet? Do you take it in? Do you take it to your heart? Do you consume it? Do you eat it as it were? And do you find it to be a delight? Do you love what he loves? Do you hate what he hates? Do the promises, the Bible refers to as precious and very great promises, do they fortify your soul? Does the blessed hope of heaven, that inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, that Scripture says far outweighs present suffering, does that sustain your heart through whatever trials you may have to endure? Are you thinking biblically, young people? Are you allowing what the culture tells you to shape your perspective and your outlook on life? Or are you developing a biblical worldview where everything that comes in is filtered through the grid of God's word so that, it is, uh, so that you have a clarity, you have a godly perspective on life, those things that are good, but also those things that are evil. So that you rejoice with those who rejoice, you weep with those who weep. You love that which Jesus loves, but you hate that which he hates. And we have to acknowledge there are things in our present experience that are sour. There are trials, there are temptations, there's suffering, there's, there's things that we struggle with. There are believers who face intense persecution for the Lord Jesus. And I'd ask you have you embraced the call of discipleship so that what you have you hold with open hands? Where you deny yourself, you take up your cross, you follow Jesus, and you say, my life is yours. We had a missions conference recently. Were you willing to say, Lord, if you would have me serve you overseas, I'm yours. I'll do it. 
or if you would have me be more involved here at home in the support of those whom we send, I'm yours, I'll do it. But I'm not here to live for my life, myself. I'm here to live for him who died that I might have life. Are you willing to embrace the sour as well as the sweet with hope and confidence in the Lord? And finally, have you ever watched the recording of a football game? Say maybe a national championship game, maybe like when Clemson beat Alabama, and you weren't able to watch it the first time, or maybe you did, but you recorded it. But let's say you didn't watch it, you recorded it. And you heard that your team won, assuming that, you know, you're not an Alabama traitor here. Um, and by the way, that's, that's quite a statement for me because I grew up hating Clemson. But, you know, we, we can change. Um, <laughs> but you know that your team wins, but you still watch the game because it's interesting. And you find yourself getting drawn into the game emotionally. You cheer for your team when they score. You groan when the other team scores. You're impacted emotionally by the events of the game, even though you know how it turns out. You feel that tension when it's fourth down in inches and your team is going to go for it. It's like, do they make it? Because you don't know how it plays out in the game. You just know how it ends. You don't know how each play is going to unfold. You, you simply know the final score. And so in the midst of watching the game, you get drawn into the drama. Well, brothers and sisters, that is a very faint reflection of what we find as we read the book of Revelation. We know who wins. We know what the final score is, as it were. We know Jesus triumphs over all of his and our enemies, and he shares that victory with us. But we don't know how each play is going to unfold. We don't know how each trial is going to play out. We know that the lion, who is a lamb, will conquer and make all things new and establish a new heaven and a new earth. We know that, but we're stuck in the third quarter, as it were. And it may even look for a time like our team might lose. So hear me. In those times when things make your stomach turn sour, in those times when you're wondering, God, what are you doing right now? I don't understand. How long can I endure this? Take your eyes and focus them on the sweetness of the promise of the glory of God. Look to those glorious promises of very blessed hope that Paul tells us that, 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 our, that, that weight of glory that far outweighs present fl- affliction or suffering, that inheritance Peter tells us can never perish, spoil, or fade. That new home. Is it pie in the sky by and by? J.I. Packer says, I like my pie in the sky. The reality is, we need that blessed hope. We need that blessed hope. May God give us grace to once again taste the sweetness of his word. Brother.